Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, my name is Susie Gelman. I'm privileged to serve as the board chair of Israel Policy Forum. If you're joining Israel Policy Forum for the first time today, I want to welcome you. And if you are a returning viewer, I want to welcome you back. I also want to recognize the fact that the folks on this call tuning in to hear about the fourth Israeli election in two years are truly the Israel Policy Forum diehard. So my hat goes off to all of you. With the Biden administration now in office, Israel Policy Forum remains as committed as ever to our mission and our vision. For those who are new to us, Israel Policy Forum works to educate policymakers, Jewish community leaders, and leaders of the next generation to be informed and effective in their support of U.S. Effort to, efforts to advance a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict consistent with Israel's security. To all of our supporters on today's call, thank you. For those who have not yet done so, I encourage you to make a contribution to Israel Policy Forum. Last year, Israel Policy Forum was able to reach tens of thousands of policymakers, community leaders, journalists, and interested individuals like you. Because of donor support, our credible nuanced analysis continues to provide a path forward to realize the vision of a Jewish democratic and secure Israel. Please help support this vital resource and visit israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving and make your gift today. Thank you. Now on to today's program. It is Israeli election season again. Last Thursday, February 4th, marked the final deadline for parties to register their candidate lists and negotiate any mergers, joint tickets, or breakups. While the players in next month's election are more or less set now, a lot can happen before March 23rd. To help us understand how events might unfold over the next six weeks, we're fortunate to be joined today by our policy director, Michael Coplo, and by Amir Tibon. Amir is the Assignments and U.S. News editor at Haaretz and a good friend of Israel Policy Forum. Before we begin, a few reminders. We encourage you to ask questions of our speakers, which we will address in the latter half of today's program. To submit a question, please type it out in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. Next, a recording of this program will be posted later on today to our website, www.israelpolicyforum.org, as an episode of our Israel Policy Podcast. So Amir is uh, not at his destination quite yet, so we're going to start with Michael Coplo, and then when Amir uh, is able to join us, we will switch over to Amir. Uh, Michael, thank you for pitching in. I know you've <laughs> you've thought and read and written a lot about the elections. So uh, my first question is: Now that the February fourth deadline to register candidate lists has passed, who are the major players in the upcoming election? Uh, so thanks, Susie. I will I will do my best uh, to fill in for for Amir until uh, until he gets to his home in Nachalos. Uh, I know he was traveling from Jerusalem, and, and often there can be traffic. So obviously, um, the person who uh, everybody is going to be most focused on is once again uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. Um, you know, this is this is the fourth election that is really going to be about Netanyahu himself and. Um, we really no longer have a right-wing camp and a left-wing camp in Israel, or even a right-wing camp and a, and a center camp. We have a pro-BB camp and an anti-BB camp. Um, and so Netanyahu, of course, uh, is at the center of the pro-BB camp. 
Um, and uh, as, as usual, he is, uh, you know, he, he's going to dominate the conversation. Um, but what we do have differently from the previous three elections is that the main challengers to Netanyahu now uh, are not only coming um, from different places uh, than he is ideologically, we now also have some serious challengers that are within the traditional right-wing camp. And so, whereas in the first three elections, it was Benny Gantz and Kahol Lavan that were looking to unseat Netanyahu, and you really only had two candidates for prime minister, Netanyahu and Gantz. This time, uh, we have Yair Lapid as uh, the person who is likely to get the most votes, and his party, Yesh Atid, is likely to have the most seats behind Likud. Um, and obviously, he's somebody you know who has challenged Netanyahu in the past, but he has never really been um, the primary the primary alternative to Netanyahu. Uh, but then, and this is where, as I said, things are different, uh, you have Gidon Sa'ar, who uh, formed a new party, Tikva Khadasha. Uh, he's a longtime Likud member. Uh, he's a, a minister in multiple Netanyahu governments. Um, but his you know, for years now, been Netanyahu's primary challenger within Likud, so much so that he challenged Netanyahu for the leadership of Likud between the second and third, <laughs> between the second and third elections. Um, so he formed his own party, Tikva Chadasha, and uh, it is filled with not only former Likudniks, but people who are um, uh, right-wing on their own. Uh, people on this webinar may be familiar with Dani Dayan, the, uh, the former, uh, most recent former uh, council general in New York, and also a former head of the Yesha Council. He's running with, with Gideon Saar, um, Tzvi Hauser and uh, Yoaz Hendel, who were the two most right-wing members of Kahol Avon. They're running with Gideon Saar. So, you know, he is another person who is looming large in these elections, and he's within Netanyahu's camp. And then you have uh, Naftali Bennett, who has, of course, been around for a long time, um, also, you know, unabashedly right-wing. Uh, I think that it's it's fair to say that both Sa'ar and Bennett are actually to Netanyahu's right ideologically, but this is the first time that Bennett has announced that he is also running as a candidate for prime minister. In the past, he has run, and uh, it's been assumed that he will join a government under Netanyahu, given, given his right-wing bent, and, you know, he did serve uh, most recently as Netanyahu's defense minister. This time he says he's a candidate for prime minister. Now, um, you know, if you look at Lapid and Sa'ar and Bennett, Lapid and Sa'ar have both been very clear that they will not sit with Netanyahu. Um, we all know, based on what happened last time, that uh, these types of promises are uh, more easier, more easily advanced than kept. Um, in Lapid's case, you know, it's it's really impossible to see a situation in which he would sit with Netanyahu in government, given that he held out through the last time, uh, you know, and and was willing to uh, was willing to break Kahol Laban apart as a result. Um, Gideon Saar, you know, it's also hard to see him sitting with Netanyahu in government, given the fact that he's, you know, effectively formed what's basically a new Likud party that is only different from Likud um, in that it does not include Netanyahu. Bennett, you know, is, is a different story. He says he's running as candidate for prime minister. It's hard to see how he can actually be the candidate for prime minister 
of the anti-Netanyahu camp, since he's going to finish almost certainly with fewer seats than both Lapid and Sa'ar. Um, and when push comes to shove, you know, if it's the seats, if it's the Yamina seats, that's Bennett's party, uh, that will push Netanyahu over the edge, you have to imagine that Netanyahu will basically promise him anything and everything, including perhaps, you know, a rotation as prime minister, since, since now that's a thing. Um, it's possible that, you know, he'll promise Bennett even that and that Bennett would join with him. So it's kind of hard to see where Bennett falls. He doesn't fall cleanly into the anti-Netanyahu camp. He doesn't fall cleanly into the pro-Netanyahu camp, given that he's announced that he's challenging him for prime minister. Um, so, you know, he's, he's floating in this in this odd in-between space. But those are really the the people at the top. There are obviously other parties and, and personalities, and we can, we can talk about them. Um, but those are the people who are running, as they say, for prime minister. Thank you, Michael. Um, I hope that's clear to everybody. <laughs> it seems like there's a lot of moving parts here. To the extent that there are issues and not just personalities at play in this election, what what is your sense of uh, Israeli voters' priorities going into March 23rd? So the number one priority, I think, is still going to be, um, are you for Netanyahu or against Netanyahu? You know, I think that's probably going to be the first cut uh, for most people. And if you're against him, then you have a range of parties to vote for. And if you're for him, um, you have a smaller range of parties, but still, but still plenty of parties to vote for. Um, and, you know, in the pro-Netanyahu camp, aside from Likud, uh, are going to be the two Haredi parties, Shas and UTJ, who still consider themselves to be part of Netanyahu's natural coalition. Um, and, uh, you know, Shas, in the last few campaigns, um, literally, literally had pictures of Netanyahu on their campaign materials and their campaign banners. Um, and I'm not, you know, while they may not necessarily feature him, uh, in their cam- campaign ads this time, uh, you know, there's there's no question that um, that they are a, a pro uh, pro Netanyahu party, both Shas and UTJ. Um, but aside from the question of Netanyahu himself, obviously, COVID nineteen is a big deal in these elections, and it isn't simply about COVID nineteen itself. It's also going to be about uh, how it was handled and how it impacted uh, the economy. Uh, not just how how COVID itself was dealt with. Now, um, Prime Minister Netanyahu, I think, was uh, has been counting on the fact that by the time we get to March, Israel's vaccination campaign campaign will be um, you know well down the road as it is. You know, Israel uh, is at the is at the top of uh, of global lists in terms of uh, people vaccinated and uh, and rate of vaccines, um, but. You know, at the same time as the vaccine campaign has been successful, the campaign to eradicate COVID has been less so. And Israel uh, just came out of uh, a multi-week lockdown, um, the third such lockdown that Israelis have gone through. And those lockdowns have been uh, pretty unpopular, but they also haven't been that effective because, um, you know, the, the rates for COVID in Israel are also very high, despite the fact that uh, the vaccine, uh, the vaccine, uh, and rate of vaccinations are high as well. So you know, there's going to be part of this will be a referendum on Netanyahu's handling of of COVID, and it's not just going to be about the vaccines as I, as I think he wanted it to be. It's also going to be uh, about some of his decisions in terms of lockdowns and about how those have impacted the economy. And you know, Bennett in particular, since COVID started 
has basically run on the platform of being the person who would be best suited to handle uh, the pandemic. And so, you know, he has been seizing and will continue to seize on decisions that Netanyahu has made, um, you know, that range from keeping Ben-Gurion Airport open uh, essentially for a year until until a few weeks ago, um, to the fact that Netanyahu went out uh, during the summer um, and told people that, uh, you know, COVID was, was effectively conquered and that people should literally go out and, you know, go out to bars and have a beer. Um, you know, that's all going to be part of part of the campaign, uh, undoubtedly. Um, and, you know, Saar is going to seize on that too, and Lapid's going to seize on that too. Um, you know, and there are going to be issues as well related to Netanyahu's uh, treatment of Israeli institutions. You know, and these will be familiar from the previous three campaigns uh, in terms of the way he treats the, the judiciary and, and, and the police and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then, you know, one other that I think is important to mention, and this is related to COVID, but it's not quite the same thing. Um, because of Netanyahu's close ties to the Haredi parties and their close ties to him, uh, the fact that there is now a lot of anger over, um, over the perception that the Haredim in Israel uh, don't abide by the rules of lockdowns or, or quarantines or social distancing, and that they don't abide by it, but that also enforcement in Haredi communities um, is not the same. You know, there are all sorts of signs that, that many Israelis are getting fed up with the Haredim in ways that they haven't before. And I think that that is going to be an issue in the campaign. And that obviously has uh, the potential to impact Netanyahu as well. Um, I see that Amir is here. So at this point, I'm going to, uh, uh, I'm going to sign off from, from doing the, the best I could to fill in for Amir, although I'm never quite a replacement for him. Well, thank uh, you, Michael, for, for pinch hitting. Hi, Amir. Hi, hi. Can you hear me okay? Hear you great. And uh, okay. let me just sort of catch you up on where we are. We, uh, and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, so we talked a little bit about the February 4th deadline having passed to register candidate lists and who the major players are. Michael kind of walked us through the various parties. We haven't really gotten into yet uh, how these parties are polling. So you may want to touch on that in terms of what what the potential coalition could look like depending on on who gets what. But let me ask a few more questions and then I'll maybe if you want to cover that or I don't know, Amir, if you want to just say something um, as a start uh, in terms of, you know, Israel's going into f- the fourth election in two years. And and that in and of itself is worth discussing, I think. And do we expect that the outcome of this election will be determinative or, you know, people are already talking about fifth elections before the fourth one's even been held. But I don't know if you wanted to maybe just um, start with some introductory thoughts and then I'll continue with my questions. And of course, we've got some audience questions as well. So first of all, Susie, I'll start with an apology for joining a bit late. Um, I we knew you were going to be a little late, so no problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, still, I, I was driving from Jerusalem, there was traffic, there were accidents. Another day um, in, 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 in the roads of Israel, but I made it and I'm so happy to be here with you and with Michael and all the uh, friends from ITF. Um, and you know, Susie, you said um, fourth election. Um, we just went out of the third lockdown. Um, so uh, I think in between those two numbers, the, the three lockdowns over the past year, uh, four elections over a period of uh, almost two years, 
And we are now already talking about the fifth election and potentially the fourth lockdown. Um, that's the story of our life in the last uh, two years. Um, it's uh, definitely a big challenge. Um, the, the fact that this election is going to take place during the COVID crisis. The third election of March 2020 also coincided to some degree with COVID, but then COVID was something rather new. We didn't really know too much about it. The only people back then who voted unusually, and remember, this was less than a year ago, just to understand how different our life uh, is today. The only people who voted a bit differently in, in that election were people who came back to Israel on election day from certain European countries where COVID was prevalent, like Italy and France. There were about 5,000 of those people, and they had, had to vote in special COVID booths where they, they had to come with masks, um, and the ballots were counted by people who wore these space suits. Um, I actually had two relatives, my, my aunt and my cousin, who were in that uh, voting booth in Tel Aviv. This time, everything is going to be different. I mean, this is a national election that is all happening. And you guys just went through that in the United States, obviously. Um, but how does that impact campaigning? How does it impact the logistics of election day? Those are huge questions that we're not really dealing with right now because everybody in Israel right now is only asking one question. Will the school system be open by the beginning of next week? Uh, because people have been uh, stuck at home with children of all age groups for almost a month now. Um, and the same thing happened in the second lockdown and in the first lockdown. And some children um, in, in the classes of, you know, fourth to um, eighth grade have not gone to school in months now. So it's, it's, it's a huge crisis. Um, so in between those two issues, the lockdowns and another election campaign that, like you hinted, Susie, could very much end without a clear resolution and without a clear victory and lead to a fifth election. Um, that's the two crises that we are dealing with right now, the health economy crisis caused by COVID and the crisis of instability in Israeli politics that is caused mostly by Benjamin Netanyahu's legal troubles. Which I'm sure we will get to, and I already see an audience question about that. And Amir, just when you compare you know, the fact, the way the United States ran the November elections, of course, we had a lot of options that Israelis don't, because as, if I'm not mistaken, only in-person voting is allowed. So there's no such thing as absentee true, true. voting or early voting or mail, you know, you can't mail in a ballot in Israel. So nope. the complications that presents when COVID is still very prevalent, uh, will be, I guess, interesting to watch. Um, Amir, let's let's drill down a little bit in terms of what the political landscape looks right, like right now with these various parties. And of course, you know, February 4th being the deadline, um, some folks like Ron Khuldayi, who formed a new party, the Israelis, he's the longtime, very popular mayor of Tel Aviv, decided to, to fold his tent, others as well. So there's been a lot of movement in the last week. Um, while mergers are no longer possible, candidates and parties can still withdraw from the race. Do we expect this to happen with any of the parties that are hovering around the electoral threshold? And you might want to just remind our audience what the electoral threshold signifies. Yeah. So, so what Susie just mentioned, the electoral threshold is going to be the most important player in this election. This election will be determined by the electoral threshold, which, what does it mean? Um, in our political system, 
anyone can form a party. It's very easy to form a party and run for the election. I think in this election, we are looking at 39 different parties that have officially, uh, on February 4th, as you mentioned, Susie, decided to file the paperwork and run for the Knesset. Uh, we only expect between 10 to 12 of them to actually get elected. By the way, of course, when I talk to American friends, usually when I get to this part of the explanation, only 10 or 12 parties will be in the Knesset. People say... That's crazy because in America, you guys only have two. Um, but, but for us, you know, you get, how do you get from 39 running to 10 or 12 actually represented in the Knesset? That's the electoral threshold. In order to win even one single seat in the Knesset, a party needs to receive at least 3.25% of the total vote. So we've had many cases over the years where parties got very close to that threshold, the 3.25, but were just below it. And then all of the votes that such a party receives basically go to the trash. They are not counted. <laughs> of the 39 parties that are going to run, we expect, like I said, almost 30 not to be even close to the threshold. But if one or two parties will get, let's say, 3.20%, just a little bit shy of the threshold. Um, and then, of course, that party doesn't pass, so all of those votes go to the trash. That could completely change the balance between what we call the two blocks in this election, because this election is not a right-wing versus left-wing election. It's even not a right-wing versus center-left election, as we have become accustomed to uh, discuss in Israeli politics. This is an election between two electoral blocks of parties, the Netanyahu religious bloc and the anti-Netanyahu bloc. Um, and the whole question, the whole ballgame is, which of these two political blocks, uh, and I can go in a second into which parties are a member of each bloc, but which of the two will get a majority of 61 seats in the Knesset? Right, the Knesset, the Knesset overall is 120. Smallest possible majority is 61. I want to remind our viewers, in the election that began this madness, the, the election that began this circus of the absurd in Israel, the Netanyahu religious bloc ended election night on April 9th, 2019, almost two years ago. They ended election night with 60 seats in the Knesset, one short of a majority. And the party of Naftali Bennett back then was... 1,300 votes below the electoral threshold. If Bennett's party had received those extra, extra 1,300 votes, they would have made it into the Knesset. The Netanyahu and religious parties bloc would have grown from 60 seats to 62 or 63, and Netanyahu would have a governing majority with the religious right-wing parties that could have held for a year, for two, and would have changed Israel. It would have changed the constitutional foundation of Israel, because such a government, the plan was to basically weaken the legal system, uh, pass a, a law that gives the government and even the smallest Knesset majority the ability to overrule Supreme Court decisions, and then cancel the indictment against Netanyahu. Bennett was short of the electoral threshold, as I said, by 1,300 votes. As a result, Netanyahu was stuck with 60. He couldn't form a government, and we went to a second election which led to the third election, which led to the fourth, and, you know, Chad Gadia, as we would say in, in Passover. But this time, the electoral threshold is going to be just as important, because like Susie mentioned, several parties, both in the pro-Netanyahu and anti-Netanyahu bloc, are 
very close to the electoral threshold in all the polling, either a bit above it or a bit underneath it. Which parties am I counting in that group? Meretz, which is you know the classic liberal left-wing party. Today there was one poll on Channel 11 where Meretz is below the threshold. And as a result, Netanyahu's block is over 60. But yesterday there was another poll where one of the small uh, pro-Netanyahu, the very right-wing, extreme, uh, fundamentalist, a, a, what we call the National Religious Party, led by Bezalel Smotrich, was below the threshold. And as a result, the anti-Netanyahu bloc was above 60. It's very hard to make any sense of these polls because, um, you know, in a poll of Israeli parties, let's say a pollster gives Likud 29 seats in the poll and eventually Likud wins 30 seats or 28. It doesn't really matter that one seat here or there. But if a pollster gives Meretz four seats, which is above the threshold, and Meretz eventually wins only three and goes beyond the threshold, that's, that's, a, complete, that's a huge difference. One seat for a, a big party here or there, not so important. But one seat here or there for a small party, passing or not passing the threshold, dramatic. Mm, wow. Um, and by the way, we have a question from the audience about the system, which I'll get to in a little bit. Uh, one of the, Amir, as you know, one of the big stories in the past couple of weeks has been the resurgence of the Labor Party under its newly elected chairwoman, Merav Mikhaeli. Before Mikhaeli took on the party leadership, the party was basically moribund. Now it's looking at as many as eight seats in some polls. What do you think accounts for this? Uh, first of all, it's connected to what you said, Susie, about Ron Khuldai. There was a vacuum among the uh, uh, center-left in Israel, people who are more to the left of Yair Lapid, um, but maybe uh, a little less than Meretz uh, or the joint list. Uh, this is the, you know, what, what is left of the historical uh, voting population of the Labour Party. Most of the previous Labour voters are today voting for Yair Lapid. But there still was a vacuum there. Khuldai, as you said, the mayor of Tel Aviv. And I'm sure, by the way, when he announced that he's not going to run for the Knesset, a lot of people in Tel Aviv were relieved because they love him as the mayor and they want to keep him there. Um, and so, you know, for the city of Tel Aviv, it was a good day. Maybe for the country, it's a loss that he's not running. But for the Tel Avivim, will be happy. But um, once Merav Mikhaeli um, won the primary in labor, and they promised to uh, reinvigorate the internal debate and internal democracy in the party. And they have a list with some other interesting names. They have Omer Barlev at number two. Omer is a retired colonel in the IDF, used to be the commander of Sayeret Matkal, the most prestigious Israeli commando unit. They have a Rabbi Gilad Kariv uh, at number four. He, he, if, he, if they win four seats, if they pass the threshold, he will be the first reform rabbi to ever enter the Knesset. Um, so, you know, interesting list. Um, and I think they, they basically took over what Khuldai had in the polls. And you could see immediately that once Mirav Mikhaeli and this new labor list were presented to the public, labor went up and Khuldai went down. But are they going to be able to keep those numbers in the month and a half that we have until the election? It's going to be really hard because there are some dynamics that are going to come into play. Um, Lapid is going to ask people to give him the vote so Yeshatid, his party, can get closer to Likud in the numbers, and he wants a head-to-head matchup with Netanyahu. Avigdor Lieberman, who used to be considered part of the Netanyahu right-wing bloc, but then broke away from Netanyahu and the religious parties, and is now framing himself as the fighter for secular Israelis. He's running a campaign against the ultra-Orthodox parties. He's trying to appeal to the labor voters as well. 
Uh, merits, as I said, is hovering above and below the threshold. One poll, they pass the threshold. One poll, they don't. Some labor voters might feel that they need to save merits. And, and so suddenly eight very quickly can become four or five and labor could just as well find itself in a more difficult position. I'm going to ask a couple more questions and then we've got a lot from the audience that I want to get to at least some of them. So Amir, on the flip side of labor, you have Kahol Levan under Benny Gantz, which is still in the race, but barely hovering above the electoral threshold. What does his downfall and the disintegration of his party mean for the anti-Netanyahu bloc? Oh, that's a painful question, Susie. Um, Because, you know, for so many Israelis, uh, there was hope um, in Benny Gantz uh, leading Kahol Levan. And, and, you know, in the election of September 2019, what we call round two, the anti-Netanyahu bloc received 65 seats, whereas the pro-Netanyahu bloc received only 55. Remember, the election before it was 60-60, it was a tie. That was a moment when clearly Netanyahu had lost that election, um, and Blue and White had the opportunity to form a coalition, and uh, it was a dereliction of duty, but they, uh, you know, Gantz didn't have the courage to do what was necessary uh, and to form a government. Yes, supported by the joint list, uh, I mean, look, Netanyahu has been in cooperation with the, Zion, the anti-Zionist Haredi parties for all these, well, I won't say anti-Zionist, but not Zionist Haredi parties for all these years. And now um, Netanyahu is also cooperating with uh, a, a faction that broke away from the joint list, the uh, Islamist movement we call Ra'am. Um, I mean, he, he's working with them. Why can't Gantz work with the other parts of the joint list? But he you know, for reasons that I think history will judge very harshly decided not to do it. We went to the third election. And in the third election, the result was not as good as in the second election. The the anti-Netanyahu bloc went down from 65 to 62, which is still a majority, but harder to govern. And that's what led us to the unity government between blue and white or what was left of blue and white after the disintegration with Netanyahu. And historically, people who go into government with Netanyahu from the center left uh, don't live to tell what happened. Um, there's a long history of, uh, of parties that set in coalition with Netanyahu, and then that was pretty much the end of their leaders' careers. And Gantz is on his way to join that, uh, that list. Um, I'm not sure whether he will run until the end or not. I mean, if the polls will consistently showing, uh, will show blue and white passing the threshold, then he will run until the end. You know, if he gets four or five seats, in the next Knesset, he can be some kind of a kingmaker if it's a very close result between the two blocks. If the polls consistently show them not passing the threshold, I think there will be huge pressure on him to drop out. And it could be uh, presented as his final revenge on Netanyahu. That if he doesn't run, and by not running, he helps the anti-Netanyahu bloc secure a majority because he's not burning votes under the threshold, then he can get even with Netanyahu for the very, really dishonest and uh, and disrespectful way that Netanyahu broke their agreement. Because I think it's important to mention, these two gentlemen um, signed an agreement that was supposed to prevent the current situation of another election. And Netanyahu deliberately broke that agreement by refusing to pass a state budget. And this is what led us to the current situation. Amir, um, just uh, to follow up about the joint list, um, and Ra'am, that you talked about breaking away from the joint list. Could you talk a little bit more about Prime Minister Netanyahu's recent outreach to Arab voters in this election, especially in light 
of infamous instances of race baiting and anti-Arab rhetoric from Likud and frankly from the prime minister in recent campaigns. So what is the significance of Likud running its first Arab candidate this cycle? And what does it mean that this candidate was given an unrealistic spot on the Likud list? Mm-hmm. So I think Netanyahu, obviously, you know, I, I don't need to say the very smart and adaptive politician, and he actually learns lessons from one election to the other. And a lesson that Netanyahu learned from the elections of September 2019 and then March 2020 um, was that if he goes against the Arab uh, voters and against the joint list like he had done successfully in the past, I mean, the most infamous, and you mentioned it, Susie, example is 2015, six years ago, when he, on election day, said that the Arab voters are going to the uh, polls in droves and the, the right wing needs to, to answer them. Um, But in 2019, and again in 2020, the same move of inciting against the Arabs, of attacking the joint list, it was a boomerang that hit Netanyahu directly in the face because it led to a huge rise in Arab-Israeli participation in the election. Uh, And the joint list in the election of April 2019, they had 10 seats. Then in the election of September 2018, they had 13 seats. And in the election of March 2020, 15 seats. Uh, Netanyahu almost single-handedly brought them from 10 to 15 over two election cycles. And Netanyahu, as I said, he learns, he adapts. He he, he actually, after an election, sits with his advisors and analyzes what happens and tries to make it better for the next time. And he realized that attacking the Arab voters is not going to be helpful for him. It might ignite some fire in the right-wing base, but it comes with a price. It also ignites fire among the Arab voters. And he decided to do the opposite tactic. He is now trying to appeal to the Arab voters and to go every week to an Arab town and talk about how important it is for them to get vaccines, which, by the way, is a good thing. And I'm happy he's doing it because we want everyone to get vaccinated. So even if it serves his political campaign on this instance, I'll take it. Um, But I think his, his goal is twofold. First of all, if he can get some votes in the Arab sector, that's a net benefit for Likud. But I don't think he's counting on too many of those. His main purpose, I think, is to cause the Arab street not to be too excited about the election, like in the two previous cycles. And if he seems to be making nice with the Arab voters and appealing to them, so some of them would actually vote Likud, and others maybe at least will not, for his point of view, will not feel an urge to go to vote against him, which is what happened in the two previous rounds. We'll see if it works for him or not, but I think so far we are seeing in election polls a drop in voting intention among Israeli Arabs. And for Netanyahu, that's obviously good news because the higher the voting percentage among the uh, Arab population, the the larger the chance that the anti-Netanyahu bloc will have a majority. So I'm going to turn, we have some to audience questions. We have a number of really terrific questions. Uh, Jonathan Golden wants to know, Amir, does Gidon Saro have a plausible strategy to win voters who voted for Netanyahu in the past or will he continue to just pull voters from past blue and white voters? Oh, that's one of the most important questions of the election, obviously. Um, I think Gidon Saar has taken over some uh, blue and white electorate for sure. You can just see it in the numbers. He has built a very right-wing party. Um, his New Hope party is full of people that I personally, some of them I personally like very much, like Danny Dayan, who used to be the consul general in New York, Benny Begin, who used to be a Likud minister and and the son of the famous uh, former Likud prime minister. But they are very right-wing. 
the the break that they had with Netanyahu is is kind of similar to Republicans who broke with Trump in the United States. Uh, it's not over policy so much. It's over ideals, style of leadership, values, respect for the institutions of the state, respect for the for the rule of law, respect for democracy, really, at, at its core. Can they pull off voters from Likud with that message? Obviously, we'll only know on election day, but I, I want to say something um, that is important to remember. They don't need to pull a lot of Likud voters to make a big difference. Likud right now in the Knesset has 36 seats. The Most of the polls right now show Likud with around 29, 30, maybe 31 seats. If Gidon Saar can get Likud down to 28 seats, that's game over. Um, because those two or three seats are the balance between the two blocks. We haven't seen too many signs that he's able to do it up until now. And I think he's also taken a risk by building such a right-wing party. Over time, he could also bleed some of the support that he's taken from blue and white over to Yeshatid, over to Lieberman, over to Meretz, over to Labour Party, over to blue and white with Gantz. Because people, first of all, were very excited about Gidon Saar challenging Netanyahu and he was the, the new hot thing in town. But what's happening right now is people are realizing that this is a very right-wing list. Yes, it's admirable people. They are taking a courageous stand against Netanyahu's corruption and against his attack on the institutions of the state. But is that enough to make a center-left voter go with someone who is so strongly supportive of the settlements? I'm not sure. And then will they be rewarded for that move by managing to peel off those two or three seats that they need to take from Likud. That would be the whole game. Um, we'll see. Okay. Uh, Nancy Kaplan um, asked the following, Amir. I'm surprised that Netanyahu is not in more trouble with Israeli voters over his refusal, refusal to allow the country to pass a budget, which was clearly done in order to prevent the rotation with Gantz and save Netanyahu's own political skin. Not having a budget is having a terrible impact on funding for all sorts of desperately needed programs and services. Is this is the economy and the failure to pass a budget or the refusal to pass a budget an issue in this election, Amir? It's an issue. Unfortunately, not enough of an issue. And here I must say um, it's always easy for a journalist to criticize uh, his competitors But I do think the Israeli media, and specifically the two leading television channels, did a terrible job in covering the events that led to this election. They mostly covered it as a uh, both sides thing. Oh, the politicians are fighting and the government is falling apart. Oh, the, gov the politicians can't get along. Oh, the politicians can't pass a budget. Instead of naming the person who is responsible for it, which is Netanyahu, and explaining that Benny Gantz, we can accuse him of ineptitude. We can confuse him of uh, being naive. We can, uh, we, we can accuse him of being naive and confused. But he is not to blame for this situation. But the responsibility lies with Netanyahu only in this situation. And I think the media, for reasons that we can analyze, uh, you know, maybe in another session, if you want to invite me once for a session on the Israeli media, didn't do a good enough job of presenting the facts on this issue to the Israeli public. Um, With that, I will also say it's also on the opposition parties to drive the arguments and to focus the election on the issues that play into the hands of the opposition. If they want to see how it's done, they can maybe call some of the people who just worked on Joe Biden's successful 
challenger campaign that for the first time in almost 30 years in the United States led to the loss of a sitting president. It's possible for the opposition to dominate the conversation, to get the media to talk about what the opposition wants to highlight and not what the government wants to highlight. Right now, not enough of that is happening in Israel. We have a question from John Shapiro. Hi, John. Uh, will the anti-BB parties ever sub- subordinate their personal egos in order to merge to become a governing coalition? I hope so. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, the, that's the question of the day, basically. You know, I mean, it's, uh, I, I'm not optimistic about it, I have to say. I think the chances for a fifth election are not so low because what we have is basically either Netanyahu and the religious parties have a governing majority or the anti-Netanyahu bloc has a non-governing majority. That's what we had in the three previous election rounds. I mean, three times Netanyahu failed to get 61, and three times the opposition failed to form an alternative government. It's very hard to have a government that stretches all the way from Gidon Saar's very right-wing party to the joint list. It's, it's almost impossible. The one scenario that some analysts are talking about is that if there is a deadlock once again, and Netanyahu doesn't have a majority, then you could have Bennett, who currently sits on, you know, he wins between 11 to 13 seats in the polls, and of course, that's also a right-wing party. Their name literally is Yamina, which is, you know, take a right turn. Um, But there are some analysts who say, if there is a deadlock once again, and the country is, is heading towards a fifth election, Bennett could switch sides. And if you add Bennett to the anti Netanyahu bloc, you basically don't need the joint list anymore. Because the joint list, let's say they get around 10 seats in this election, 11, 12 if they have a good election. And Bennett, again, he gets between 10 to 12 if he has, if he has an okay election. You, you take the joint list out of the equation and you put Bennett instead as somebody who crosses between the blocks. Now you have a governing majority. It's a very weird governing majority. It stretches from Bennett and Saar on the right to Lapid in the center to Merits and Labor, if both of them pass the threshold, on the left. But it's at least a Zionist governing majority and also a secular to moderately religious governing majority without the ultra-Orthodox parties. Uh, Now, this kind of government probably will not hold for too long, but it will say we are now going to focus on three priorities. Number one, COVID. Number two, the economy. And number three, healing the country. Bring, bridging the divides between religious and secular, right-wing and left-wing, Jewish and Arab. And maybe you could hold, and of course, the, what they will not say, but what will be the only real glue holding it together will be number four, getting rid of Netanyahu. Um, but for Bennett to actually make that cross and make the move, First of all, two things need to happen. Netanyahu needs to not get to 61 with Bennett, because if if Netanyahu and all the religious parties and Bennett have 61, it will be very hard for him to cross sides. And number two, he needs to grow a spine. He needs to find the courage to act against Netanyahu. So we'll see. Uh, But I think that's the only alternative to a Netanyahu government or a fifth election. And related to this scenario that you were just describing, uh, Michael Lustig asks, it's obviously impossible to guess how coalitions will coalesce, but is there a possibility of a center-right coalition forming that excludes the Haredi parties? Because I didn't hear you mention Shas in, in this construct you just offered. Yeah, um, Lieberman has focused his campaign on, on not sitting with the Haredim, 
were, well, the Haredim promised that they are going with Netanyahu until the very end. They will not sit with anyone else. And, and I think the reason they're promising it is because there is a huge support for Netanyahu in the ultra-Orthodox public right now. Uh, many ultra-Orthodox voters see the corruption cases against Netanyahu as some kind of persecution, and they identify with him. Um, and also, I think that they know that Netanyahu is so weak right now because of the legal situation that he will give the ultra-Orthodox parties more than anyone else because he needs them not for survival as a prime minister, but for survival personally. Basically, if he wants to um, get to the point where he has enough power to change the constitutional order of Israel and cancel his own indictment and then cancel the court's ability to overrule the cancellation of the indictment, only the Haredim will give him that. And he needs that. Um, so the ultra-Orthodox in Israeli politics, let's say 15, 20, 30 years ago, they were seen as the kingmakers. They were seen as the ones who decide if it's going to be a Rabin government or a Barak government or a Netanyahu government or a Sharon government. They were seen as, you know, they can go with either side and with anyone. But that's no longer the case. They are together with Likud today. They are together with Netanyahu, 100%. The advantage that it brings to them is, of course, as long as Netanyahu is in power, they are actually in power, even more than him. They are the most powerful in the country. The downside is that if he falls, they fall with him. And the alternative coalition, as I said, it will stretch from Bennett to Meretz. Again, very theoretical idea, but that's what analysts are talking about. And it will not include them. And, and one of the achievements of this coalition will be not including them, because something very interesting that we do see in public opinion polls um, is that more than 60% of Israelis, including a very large chunk of right-wing voters, don't want the ultra-Orthodox parties in the government. People are very angry. I, and I think I heard, when I, when I logged in, I heard you and Michael discuss that, that you know, there is anger at the ultra-Orthodox parties over the COVID situation. Um, and so for them, you know, it's either Netany it's Netanyahu or nothing for them. Max Polanski asks the following. We hear about right-wing and left-wing characterizations, but this election seems to be about Netanyahu, as you described. So he's wondering, what do right and left mean in Israeli politics right now? Oh, that's, you know, that's a great question. Um, obviously, the, you know, in Israel, historically, the divide was, like in many democracies, over economic issues. Later, it became a divide over the occupied territories. But uh, the absurd that uh, only Likud has actually evacuated settlements finally caught up with Israeli voters at some point after Sharon did the disengagement from Gaza. Um, and every, I think today the, 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 the real, first of all, uh, issue of right and left exists more on the fringes and it's more about cultural issues and, and the nature of the state. Uh, how religious should it be or how secular and democratic should it be? What is the place of the Supreme Court versus what is the place of the rabbinate? Questions like that. And also identity issues. Um, to be a left-winger or to be a right-winger, for a lot of people, it, it, it's perceived as an identity. When you actually talk to people and, and, and present them ideas of, you know, would you support evacuating some settlements for a peace agreement? Um, would you agree to have an Arab neighbor living in your building or stuff like that? A lot of times you will see that the right-wing, left-wing... Um, uh, um, divide is, is really muddled, but a lot of it has to do with identity uh, and how people define themselves and perceive themselves. But if we're talking about the Netanyahu divide, 
I think this is a divide over the institutions of the state. This is the main issue at hand here. Netanyahu's campaign um, and the support that he gets from the ultra-Orthodox parties and from the fanatic uh, religious uh, right like Smotrich and, and Ben Gvir is focused on the idea that he can be an agent for change, um, for uh, dismantling the power of the Supreme Court of the Justice Department, of the investigative units of the police, um, a, of the media, of all of these traditional forces um, that, that made Israel a relatively uh, liberal uh, a democratic country. Of course, never a perfect democracy, always with a very complicated reality in the occupied territories and always with issues of discrimination, like many democracies have, honestly. I mean, if, if you actually look at what's happening inside countries, you will find problems here and problems there, but still a mostly functioning democratic regime. And there is now an initiative to challenge that. Um, and, and I think this is the main divide that we're seeing in the current political system. And that's what makes it possible for Netanyahu to cooperate with the Islamist Ra'am party that, that left the joint list. Nobody can argue that they are a right-wing party on the issue of uh, what to do with Hamas in Gaza. I mean, they are part of, you know, they, they are more related to the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, so, I mean, they're not anti-Hamas. And on the other hand, for people like Danny Dayan, who are clearly right-wing on the settlements, to be now in the anti-Netanyahu camp. Since uh, Bibi made his first court appearance finally yesterday, I understand he didn't want to show up, but he was forced to show up and I guess plead not guilty. And his attorneys asked for yet another postponement, which was turned down. But we have a couple of questions about um, his current legal situation mm -hmm. and the impact on, on the campaign. Uh, so Aaron Good asks, how does the ongoing prosecution of Bibi affect the campaign? And Henry Berman asks, do you think the baby will ever get convicted and do jail time? Well, I, on the second question, it's really not my uh, place to comment. There are judges hearing the case in Jerusalem now. Whatever happens, it will be appealed to the Supreme Court. Uh, and so we'll, we'll see. Um, but uh, people who, you know, who follow this closely um, have all kinds of interpretations. Uh, I'll leave it to the judges to decide. Um, and then, but I, I, sorry, I forgot what the, what the first the question first question was really about what is the impact of his on this, of the trial on, on the, on the election campaign? Um, I think at this point it's baked in, um, for several reasons. First of all, we've been hearing about this trial for, you know, more than a year now. And, and uh, people already, we already had three elections where this was a main issue. Um, and also there was a point in time where it looked very realistic that Netanyahu could get a governing majority to cancel the indictment. And then it, it, it was a very useful campaign for the anti-Netanyahu bloc to highlight the, the anti-democratic idea behind it. Today, most Israelis, when you talk to them about the trial, they basically shrug and say, okay, there is a trial, the judges will decide. The idea that he needs to resign because he went to trial that's water under the bridge now, because that made its way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, in a unanimous 11 to 0 decision, decided that he cannot be forced to resign. Maybe the judges, uh, the justices will uh, uh, regret that one day, but that's the decision they made. So it doesn't really impact the campaign too much because people already have made up their mind about it. And basically, it's at the stage where you say, OK, you know, this is happening in the court in Jerusalem. 
he tried to postpone and delay and whatever, and he had to show up, and the judges are hearing the evidence, and it will take some time. Let's let it play out. The election is much more about COVID, the economy, the Haredim, and again, the, this big issue of what should Israel be? What kind of country is Israel? Is it a democratic and Jewish country, or is it a Jewish kind of supremacist country that also happens to be democratic? Thank you. Uh, we have a question from Hesham Youssef. If you have a fifth election and Gantz is a member of Knesset, then he becomes prime minister in November, according to the rotation agreement, right? Yes, that's the law. But uh, I'm not sure. I, I think some experts have said it will actually be the sixth election, not the fifth. So I'll explain why. When Netanyahu and Gantz signed, and by the way, I love this question, so thank you. When Netanyahu and Gantz signed their uh, agreement, It basically said that in November 2021, Gantz will become prime minister. Netanyahu left himself one loophole, which was to refuse to pass a state budget, force the collapse of the government, and lead to new elections. These elections will take place in, um, in, February, in, uh, in March, sorry, next month. We're now in February. What happens if we have a fifth election? It will probably take place around July and, or August. If Gantz gets re-elected in the fifth election and there is no decision after the fifth election and we are heading towards a sixth election comes November, he becomes prime minister. That's the law. That's true. And if I was Gantz, by the way, I would campaign on that. That would be my, my one. My, my, I would put, you know, like, you know, uh, uh, basically the, the calendar that says, you know, November, BB is out, Gantz becomes prime minister. But it cannot be real. It's not relevant to the fourth election. He needs to get elected in the fifth election in order for this to be relevant. Wow. This is getting more complicated by the By the way, if it happens, it, you know, Benny Gantz's image in history will completely change. I mean, you know, it will be, everyone say he will be the smartest politician ever. Vamashiach yavo yom echad. Yes. <laughs> Mark Pinkasovi um, asks, to what extent are Israelis considering how to change the electoral system with a view limiting the number of parties and the manner of electing the prime minister? Is that something that's being discussed at this point, Amir? It's being discussed, but the politicians have no interest to do it because the politicians benefit from... Listen, if we had a, a real unity government, not the, the, the weird thing that Gantz and Netanyahu created, a real unity government, the two biggest parties and no one else, okay? Likud and blue and white. Or after this election, Likud and Yeshatid. That kind of coalition could actually do electoral reform it, because it would be the two big parties and they would have an interest to weaken the smaller sectarian parties and maybe have a threshold of 10%. If you have a threshold of 10%, you will be left with four parties in Israel. You will have a religious right-wing party. You will have a more secular or, or conservative right-wing party. You would have a center-left party, and you'd have a left-left party. That's what you would have. A lot of people think that would be better because you would not have the uh, power of the ultra-Orthodox parties to basically get whatever they want. You would not have all these parties hovering above or below the threshold. The election would be less of a nightmare for everyone to go through. Um, but it's not possible as long as the coalition relies on small parties. Because listen, even if Netanyahu loses this election and we somehow have a constellation of Saar and Lapid and Bennett, ta, 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 it will rely on small parties to exist. Um, so, and of course, if Netanyahu wins the election, his coalition will, uh, will rely on the ultra-Orthodox, which like the current situation. So only a government of two big parties 
will be able to pass this very much needed electoral reform. I agree. This is, listen, what country has four elections in two years? It's embarrassing. It's a waste of money and time and energy. Um, and yeah, we need to fix it, but um, it will take some time, I guess. I think we have time for one or two more questions. So from Gabriela Gallagher, she asks, why has there been so little outcry about the attempt to bring Otsma Yudit into the Knesset? Last time there was plenty, including from APAC. Hi, Gabriela. Uh, thanks for the question. And uh, I hope you guys are not too cold in uh, Canada. Um, but uh, it's, um, it's a good question. I think, first of all, people get used to, to bad things over time. You know, I mean, it's a bit like with Donald Trump, right? I mean, the first scandal was a huge outrage, the second one, and the, the, the 15th scandal, you, you shrug, you say, okay, no. Uh, and I think this is a bit of what happened here because we've already seen the Netanyahu uh, cooperation with Otsmayu did before. Um, now, in Israel, there has been criticism. I mean, Sa'ar... And Lapid are hitting Netanyahu on this very hard. Lapid is using Netanyahu's language to go after Netanyahu, meaning Netanyahu used to accuse uh, Gantz and before it uh, Herzog of cooperating with terror supporters because they want to cooperate with the joint list. Now Lapid is saying Netanyahu is cooperating with a terror supporting party, Otsmayu Udit. And Gidon Saar is talking about how historically Likud used to boycott Kahana, and whenever Kahana would stand to speak on the Knesset lecture, and the, everybody, including the Likud members, would walk out, and now Netanyahu is basically putting the Kahana supporters in the Knesset. So there is criticism. In the American Jewish community, it's true that I think this raised more uh, concerns last time uh, than today. I think one possible reason for it, and this is just me speculating, I think the American Jewish community was in a much more activist mode during the Trump years, Uh, and the Trump-Netanyahu bromance uh, it was something that was evident strongly and made people very kind of critical of decisions that Netanyahu made, especially on the issue of embracing the far right, because the most important criticism that American Jews had towards Donald Trump was that he em- embraced the far right, that he was, you know, very fine people. Um, and, and the Proud Boys stands back, all of that stuff. And suddenly the Prime Minister of Israel embraces the Israeli version of the far right. So how can it be? Now with uh, Joe Biden in the White House and, uh, you know, everybody's, uh, you know, Trump said sleepy Joe at the time. I don't think he's working hard, but maybe people have become a little sleepy. Everybody's taking a break from politics for a while. Um, but it's true. I mean, it's an outrage and uh, we'll see. Maybe people will get uh, more interested in it later on. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Amir, thank you so much for joining us. And of course, we will invite you back to talk about the Israeli media and anything else you want to talk about. So um, I also want to thank our supporters who were with us on today's call because your generosity makes programs like this one possible. And again, if you've not yet done so, please consider making a contribution today at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. So thank you all so much for joining us. Once more, I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, Israel Policy Pod. Sign up to receive the weekly Koplo column in your email inbox and visit our website to access recordings of our previous briefings. Please stay tuned for an announcement regarding our next video briefing, which will take place next Tuesday, February 16th at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific, when we'll be hosting a very special program focusing on Israel Policy Forum's new Realistic Reset Project. Remember, if it's Tuesday, it's an IPF webinar. 
with that, I want to wish everyone a good afternoon, or in your case, I'm here, a good evening. And uh, thank you all for joining us. And uh, Lita Ot.